Well, it's uh, a joy and an honor to be here with you this morning. Like Seth said, I'm from Redeemer Church just across town. Uh, we are in the Grant Beach neighborhood, and uh, it's been an interesting ride for those last few years. I guess we planted, I guess, and, I, and Seth, you've been you're one of the very first people that I met when I moved to Springfield in 2010. So that's been eight and a half years now, or I guess. That's right. That's right. Eight years of blessing and mercy. So <laughs> before I digress too much, I will get way off track because I'm not quite caffeinated enough and not quite rested enough. So we're going to be, we're going to have some fun this morning, I think. So um, I, I, just, I do want to say that I've been greatly encouraged by y'all's church. I've been here many times for conferences, for meetings, things like that. You've been wonderful hosts to us. Um, your, your ministry here in Springfield has been a blessing to us at Redeemer. Y'all have had, we've got lots of friends in this room as well. Um, your partnership with Acts 29 um, and, and just your missions and efforts in Senegal as well. That's all, those are all great encouragements to us at Redeemer, to me personally. Um, and, and I would say also your leadership is rock solid. Seth has become a dear friend of mine the last few years. Matt is a rock solid dude as well. So I have great confidence in your leadership. And, um, and just it's a, a joy to come uh, preach for you this morning and be with you and worship with you. Um, so it's um, good things all around. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 46. I think the page number is in the, uh, is in the handout y'all have as well. Um, we will be, we're talking about God, our mighty fortress. And if you, if you know anything about um, church history, Martin Luther, the Reformation, um, or the, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther wrote that hymn from this psalm. And it, it follows kind of closely along with a lot of the lyrics and things like that. So if you want to write that down and listen to that later and kind of meditate on Psalm 46, that's kind of what I've been doing all week. It's been a lot of fun, a, little, a lot of joy um, to see that something that was written 500 years ago is still very relevant today. Um, and, of course, we're going to read something that's written 3,000 years ago and see that it's very relevant today. That's my goal. Anyway, so, so we'll, be, um, we'll be in Psalm 46. We'll see a few things. Um, we'll see first that God is sovereign over creation in verses 1 through 3. We'll see that he is sovereign over the nations in verses 4 through 7. We'll see also that he invites us to examine what he does in creation in the world. So we'll see that in verses 8 and 9, and then we'll see a few implications from that in verses uh, in verse 10 and the following. So uh, verses 10 and 11. So let's get started. Let me pray for us. Um, actually, I want to I want to back up and, and kind of intro this a little bit. I I'm an analytical person by nature. I like to analyze things. I like to pick things apart and figure out what's going on in them. And, and I, I learned that. Um, my parents are both analytical people by nature, and so I kind of learned that from them. I came by it honestly. But I realized um, that, that there's a, this beauty to poetry specifically that I don't get when I analyze it, when I break down and get into the nitty-picky details. Um, I took a freshman English class in high school had a really good teacher there, Miss Garcia, who taught us, um, she, she gave us the book, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. If you've read it, it's very, um, very detailed, very intricate, and very um, beautifully written. Um, it's, a lot of people don't like Dickens. I love him because he's so detailed. But she gave us different highlighters, different colored pens, different, and she had us nitpick and, and break apart all the nuance of A Tale of Two Cities. And so I have a copy of it at my house. Uh, I still have it. It's highlighted. There's all these different literary devices that we were looking into, foreshadowing all these different things, these themes that are woven throughout A Tale of Two Cities. I loved that. Some of my friends in my class, some of the friends that, did the, that took the same course, hated it. They thought that you absolutely lost the beauty of what Dickens was doing when you broke it down and, and analyzed every aspect of it. So what I want to do today is I want to look at Psalm 46, and I want to analyze some of the details. I want to dig into some of the aspects of it. 
but I also don't want to lose the beauty of the psalm itself. So I'm, I want to dig into some details and then hopefully paint some bigger, broader strokes toward the end of our time. I hope that makes sense, but let's go ahead. If it doesn't, we'll come along for the ride. We'll, we'll do this together. So first part here, um, let me, actually, let me pray for us, and then we will dive right on in. Father, we pray that you um, would be honored in this time, you'd be glorified. We praise you for your word, that it speaks throughout creation, throughout the nations, and Lord, throughout generations, throughout millennia. So I pray that your spirit would be mighty. You would send your spirit to be mighty in this room. Give us ears to hear. Give us um, eyes to see what you have done. And I pray that it would be for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So the first couple of verses here, verses 1 through 3, I'll read those and we'll dive right in. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. All right. So first thing we see here, God is our refuge and our strength. He's, this, this psalm says that he is our refuge and strength. So speaking from the, from the perspective of Israel, we'll kind of dig into some what that means in a few minutes. But he's the place that you run to. He's your safe room. He's your, your refuge and strength, your fortress, your security, your confidence. Let's move on through. Very, he's also not just your, your, uh, your refuge and strength, but he's also your very present help in times of trouble. God is as much a help today as he was to Israel in Scripture. I want to kind of play with that for a minute. But he is more present than trouble itself. Um, if, if you have been a Christian for more than 30 minutes, you understand that trouble comes after you, that, that lots of hard times come for you in your faith. They attack you. You see all these different trials and tribulations that come against you in your faith as you walk through this life. But the beautiful promise here that we'll talk through in just a minute is that God is more present than trouble itself. He's more readily available to us than the troubles that hand so all the things that you're praying through, all the things that you're wondering about, all the questions on your mind, all those different things that you have walked through and you will continue to walk through for the rest of life on this side of the sun, on this side of heaven, I should say, God is more present to you. He's a more beautiful reality to you than any of those trials. And he can also always be found when you need him. He's always at hand. He, you can pray to him. You can talk with him. You can talk with his people. You can feel the Spirit at work in you. If you claim the name of Christ, you have the Spirit of God in you, and you have him readily accessible to you at all times. He's more present and more real than your troubles. So continuing on, the psalmist says, Even though the earth gives way, mountains go into the sea, waters roar. All this, this picture of kind of chaos, right, surrounding creation, surrounding the water. What is that? Is there, think, what, what else in the Bible does that sound like? What other situation do we see mountains being moved? What other situations do we see the waters roaring and covering mountains? Genesis 6, right? The flood, Noah. So let's, let's talk through this. This is a reference to the flood in Genesis 6. The flood is, there's a lot of people, I mean, it's, I've got the Jesus Storybook Bible, the flood is in there. I've got lots of children's things refer to the flood, right? Lots of children's things refer to Noah and the flood, all the animals coming out of the ark and all that. And it, but it's, uh, to be quite honest, it's not a children's story. It's, about, it's a story about God flooding the earth to get rid of wickedness and start over with a righteous man named Noah. So it's, it's, this, it's this really interesting story, this really hard story. It's not just this, hey, let's gather all the animals and hang out during a rainstorm. It's, it's a lot more 
difficult to work through than that. But leading up to the flood, and, and really in the midst of it, we see Noah um, exhibits this great confidence in God. He builds an ark for 120 years. He builds an ark, mind you, a big ship in the middle of the land. He, there's no water around him when he's building this thing. He endured ridicule. He led his family and a whole bunch of animals onto this huge ship. He stayed on that ship during a global flood and sent out birds to help him know when the waters were receding. Then after the waters recede and the ship comes to rest, he and his family come out, to the, come out of the boat and they build an altar and worship. There's great faith through this whole time, this whole, this whole episode. There's great confidence, great help, great faith from Noah. And he has confidence because he knows the God who is in control of it all. He's in control of all the water, all the animals, all of creation. That is Noah's confidence through this entire global flood. And I would say this morning that you and I can have that same confidence in God and his purposes. Because our God is the same God in the Psalms and the same God in Genesis 6. The same God that we have been praising this morning, he is the same God as Genesis 6 throughout the Psalms. So we can have the confidence of Noah because we know the God who created everything and who sustains everything. So even though sinners flood the earth with sin, and even though the world seems to turn upside down, and even though the waters are rising, we can still have the confidence in the God who laid the foundations of the deep, like Job 38 says. And that is why we do not fear. That is what keeps us secure as God's people. We know the God of creation. We know the God who is sovereign over it. And this psalm says that God is our refuge and strength. Let me ask you this. Is God your refuge and strength? Is he my refuge and strength? Let's personalize that. So we are the community of God, like this psalm is addressing. He's our refuge and strength. Is he yours today? Maybe, maybe let's assume not. Let's, let's flip the question around. What is your refuge? Where do you run to when things get difficult, when trouble comes your way? What do, you, what do you go after? What do you look to for help? Is it relaxation? Is it Netflix or YouTube? Computer games, cell phone games? Maybe it's the beach or the mountains. Maybe you run to your friends. Maybe you're like me, you run to solitude. You run away from friends. Maybe your refuge is a good cup of coffee and a book or alcohol or drugs, pornography. What is your refuge? What do you run to for significance, for help? Why not run to the God who created you? Why not run to the one who knit you together in your mother's womb? The one who keeps your heart beating. And you can know that he is at work because you can feel your pulse right now. The God who keeps that working. The God who gave you the breath of life and who also, as Ecclesiastes 12 says, who's going to require that breath back from you at the end of your days. So why not run to him? But what does that mean practically? What does running to God mean practically? It means you should put your faith in the God of the Bible. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Noah constructed the ark in reverent fear. He was one of God's people because he had faith. That's Hebrews 11.7. And the end of Hebrews says that God provided something better for us than all these men and women in the hall of faith. He provided something better for us that Noah and many others had, the faith, had faith in a promise but now that promise has been realized in Christ Jesus. It's been delivered on. We don't have to believe in a promise. We have to believe in a man and his work. So in Genesis 6, God never, puts, never promises to, put, to flood the earth again. And he puts 
a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his promise. It's a sign of his covenant between God and his creation. But we see in Hebrews 6 and really throughout the whole rest of the Bible that Christ is the better covenant. He's the better promise. He's the better guarantee. That covenant is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who is, who is reconciling the world to God. He's fixing the brokenness. And he's secured God's people by his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. So we don't need to fear death because we have eternal life in Christ. We don't need to fear when the earth is experiencing catastrophic change because God is our sure refuge and strength. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And therefore, we can have confidence and security because we know how the story ends. We know that God is reconciling the world to himself. We know that if we claim the name of Christ, like I would assume, let's just assume that we do. If we claim the name of Christ this morning, we, ha- we know how the story ends. doesn't matter what happens to creation. doesn't matter what happens in the meantime. We know how it's going to end. So, God is our refuge. And we'll see in the next few verses that his presence is a source of confidence and security as well. Let's take a look at verses 4 through 7, the God who's sovereign over the nations. Verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So changing gears quite a bit from the first three verses to verses four through seven, we see this, this tranquil scene. Really, we don't see the, the waters raging. We don't see the earth raging. We see this tranquil scene, this, this fortress and this river that supplies Jerusalem with water. So I don't know how much you know about biblical history and the, the times back in the day, um, but water for a city back in this time was a crucial resource. Um, if you want to look back and, and talk, you know, if you want to research this kind of idea, look at Hezekiah's tunnel and the idea of the siege of Jerusalem, all those different things, but I don't want to get into that today. But a water, water was, for a city, um, a crucial resource. It was drinking water for people, drinking water for animals. So in an agrarian society, that's very important to keep the horses um, watered and fed and keep the cattle watered and fed, keep the sheep watered and fed, keep source of food. There's also irrigation for crops. So this, the idea of the, the streams of this river coming out are irrigating crops and making the land um, grow and be bountiful. It's also for cleaning, for washing, which was a big deal for Israel back then, being ritually clean, being um, you know, temple clean, all that stuff. So, but it's also a source of replenishment, of health, of security, and it's also a symbol of vitality. A beautiful river has trees, plants, all these different things by it, and it's a symbol of vitality for this culture. So this is, this is very different from us today. Um, most of us don't really give a second thought to water um, anymore. A lot of us have water bottles and stuff in this room. In fact, I do have, I have some right here. A lot of us don't really think about what it takes to get clean water um, unless there's like a boil water order or unless your water gets turned off. So a lot of us take water for granted, but, but here um, that's not a luxury that these people have. But here we also see the city of God, the habitation of the Most High. This is Jerusalem. It's the temple. Which is, and at this point in history, the temple's been built, um, all these different things. So um, the temple was there as God's dwelling place among his people. And so we see in verse 5, God is in her midst and is in the city's midst. His presence is in Jerusalem, in the temple itself. And then therefore, therefore, she shall not be moved. The city won't be moved. So we see then there's this implication that God's presence Bring stability and security and safety for his people. And then um, I think one of the things that, as I was working through this, one of the things that kind of fired off my mind and made me think a lot more 
carefully about this, was um, this next phrase, that God will help her when the morning dawns. And I started thinking through that. I, don't, I didn't really, it doesn't really make sense to us in you know, 2018 Springfield, Missouri. But we see throughout Scripture, if we take a biblical understanding of the dawn and understanding what new mornings look like, we see in Lamentations 3 that God's mercies are new every morning. So I think one of the things that, that the psalmist is conveying here is that whenever you get up, whatever time you get up, his mercy is there to greet you. Whatever time you wake up, he, is, he has already established his mercy there. And, and really, um, in, in a military context, and this, this is kind of a militaristic psalm, right? There's a lot of military language throughout this. Um, his mercy is there before the enemy can attack you. One of my um, kind of, I don't know, one of my quirks, one of my things that I like to study is leadership, and especially secular leadership principles and just kind of seeing how secular people, like non-Christian people, lead the world and how that coincides with Scripture and how it coincides with a biblical worldview. One of my favorite leaders as of late is a guy named Jocko Willink. He's written several books. He's a retired Navy SEAL. He runs a consulting company, and he's got a really great podcast. He is not at all a Christian under any circumstances, not at all saved. But I would certainly say he's a great leader and he's a great person to learn from. I've learned a tremendous amount from him. Um, but every day he gets up at 4.45 a.m. and goes and works out. Every day, 4.45 a.m. without fail. That's in his, he takes a picture of his watch every morning when he wakes up. So 4.32, 4.38, 4.42, 4.00. He, he wakes up at 4-something every morning and goes and works out. And he takes a picture, posts it on his Instagram, posts it on his Facebook but he wakes up at 4.45 to get a head start on the day before the enemy is up and moving. So he's a military veteran, right? So he gets up before the enemy is moving, before they can get ready. Um, so by the time that they are up and out of bed, he's already had his cup of coffee and he's already strategized the day and he's ready for any attack the enemy can bring. That's Jocko's philosophy of life. It's one way to live. He even, ha he even has a coffee mug, one of his branded coffee mugs that says um, it's got 434 up before the enemy on it, um, which is an interesting way of looking at life, right? Being prepared, being ready, no matter what the circumstances. But this psalm here, the Lord says that um, the Lord's help is up before our enemies. He's up before the dawn, preparing your mercy and help for the day. So you may be one of the people that sees 4.45 a.m. as the enemy. That's fine. That's, that's okay. The Lord is waiting on you too. So whether you get up at the crack of noon or whether you're like Jocko and you get up at insane o'clock, the Lord's mercy is there waiting for you. He's ready for you. He's ready and waiting on us. And, and I would also say that this, is, this readiness He's not slow. He doesn't sleep in. He's not, he's not dragging his feet. He doesn't hit the snooze button. He's faithful and true. Second Peter 3 alludes to that. He, he's not slow as we count, or slow, as we count slowness. Um, or maybe you're not a military guy. That's fine. Uh, maybe you're more of like a Lord of the Rings person. So let's, let's switch gears on that completely. Sorry to jerk you around on that. But like Gandalf, his mercy arrives precisely when he intends it to. Hopefully that should bring you some security. I see some more smiles in that. It's okay. So good. So good. We're, we're Gandalf people, not Jocko people. That's fine. That's totally good. That's good. I know, I know what I'm dealing with now. That's good. <clears throat> so, in contrast to this tranquil, secure scene, we see the world doing something else. Let's take a look in verse 6. We see the nations rage, kingdoms totter. 
We see this, this fury, this roaring, this confusion, the exact opposite of God's presence, the exact opposite of Jerusalem. And then we see that God speaks and the earth melts. What an interesting turn of phrase there. You see, God spoke creation into existence, and he can change its nature by speaking it as well. He upholds creation by the word of his power. He owns it, and he can tell anything in creation to do what he wants. And we see this in creation, with the creation of planets, of stars, of light, of plants, animals, humans. We see it in Noah. The crea- we see that creation rebels, humanity sins, and God floods the earth. We see it in the plagues in Egypt, the, turning the water to blood. We see tons of frogs, flies, locusts, gnats, hail, boils, all kinds of things. And we see in Exodus... Later on in Exodus, after the plagues, we see a rescued nation walking through a seabed on dry ground, and then the sea closing in and crushing their enemies and their bodies washing up on the seashore. And we see Jesus performing miracles, helping the blind see, helping the deaf to hear, helping the lame walk, feeding 5,000 people with a sack lunch. He's recreating things. And I would also say these are but the outskirts of his ways, the fringes of who he is, Job 26. And in Revelation 19.11, we see Jesus returning, that he's going to slay the wicked with one word from his mouth. It's not some epic battle with tanks and missiles and explosions and everything. He fells them with one word. And if you want to see a mighty fortress is our God, if you want to get into that hymn, one mighty word will fell him. Or one little word, I say, one little word will fell him, will fell Satan, will fell God's enemies. So we see that God is sovereign over creation, that when he speaks, the earth changes, it melts. He has authority over it. And we see redemption as well. Jesus says one little word, tetelestai, and it's finished. When he's the last word that he says on the cross, tetelestai, it's finished, paid in full. The debt's been paid. That's our Jesus. He simply says it, and it is. If we look at verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. You may have seen Lord of hosts in your time in scripture, that's a military term and it talks about one who commands armies. These hosts are armies. So God is the one who commands armies. He's the Lord of hosts. And then we see also in verse 7 this refrain, the God of Jacob is our fortress. So his presence is in Israel's midst and he is their identity. If you think about, um, if you think about what God's presence was for his people, I know many of you may not have read like Leviticus, Numbers, and that's valid. That's fine. Those are boring books if you take a face value at them. But if you look at the way, like in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, if you can make, those, make it through those in your Bible reading plan, right, and not stop in Leviticus and be like, oh, this is dumb. I'm just going to keep reading the New Testament. If you look through that, you see that God's presence and his character and his nature is what gives Israel their identity. They build, they build their entire camp. All these hundreds of thousands of people build an array and tribes surrounding the tabernacle, surrounding his presence. He gives them feasts. He gives them sacrifices. He gives them daily ritual practices. He gives them things how to disciple their children. He, he regulates their entire identity and the, their entire life by who he is. That's a good thing. His, 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 his character, his nature, his presence is stabilizing. It's anchoring for them. So let's ask you this. Is the Lord's presence crucial to your existence? Is he, is he crucial to you? Do you rely on him for nourishment, 
security and stability like this city relies on a river? Do you rely on the Lord in that same way? Or is he just an afterthought to you, something that you do on the weekends and take for granted until you get some sewage in your life and you have to scramble and do a boil water order? Who is the Lord to you? Is his presence crucial to you? And the second question is, is God in your midst? Is he living inside of you? Do you have the Spirit of God in you? Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart? If you claim the name of Christ, if you follow Jesus faithfully, then you have God living in you. And that is no small feat. He's at work sanctifying you, leading you, rebuking you when needed, comforting you when needed. And he's your security. He's the down payment of your salvation that secures you for heaven and guarantees that God will never leave or forsake you. The Holy Spirit in your midst, God in your midst, is a beautiful security and a beautiful promise to you if you claim the name of Christ. So with God in our midst, with God securing and nourishing and leading us, we should not be moved. This world may rage against him, it may reject him, it may declare open war on him and his people, but the God who commands armies is with us. The God who can make the earth melt with his voice is in our midst. So let's not worry about anything. Why would we? I'm not saying that we don't have concerns. Certainly this world is full of them. Maybe your home is full of them. You're in good company. We have many things that stress us, money, health, relationships, commitments, but we shouldn't be moved. We shouldn't be shaken by those things. We should live wisely. We should live in Christian community, support each other, encourage each other with scripture and the reality that God is in our midst and that he's for us. And let's cling to our refuge, our fortress, the God who commands armies, who lives within us. Let's live in that reality because that is reality. So next we, after seeing that God is sovereign over creation, he's sovereign over the nations as well. Next, God invites us to see the powerful works that he has done. Verses 8 and 9, let's take a look there. We'll see two different things. We'll see that he brings desolation to the earth, and we'll see that wars cease and weapons are broken. So verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. So verse 8, see what he's doing. He's bringing desolation and destruction to parts of the earth that are waging war. There's this call to observe what he's doing and understand the Lord's motivations for how he's moving in his creation. In verse 9, he says, he makes wars cease all over the earth. And I'll tell you this, I, I I know some veterans, I don't know war firsthand. I've never fought one. I've never been in one. I've seen some videos online. It's pretty crazy, pretty wild. So I don't know all that's involved in war, but I know that this is huge, making a war cease. I'm a student of history. I love studying things. And so bringing it in to all the violence, all the conflict, all the destruction, the disruption of life, the collateral damage, all the resources spent, all the lives lost, all the political motivations, and he makes that stop in his tracks. Makes wars cease. And not only does he stop it cold, he also destroys the weapons of war, bows, spears, chariots. He breaks the ability to wage war. That's important as well. 
So we see from these couple of verses that those who war against the Lord or who want to rule the earth with military force will face the God who is sovereign over both creation and the nations because they cannot rule anything without his approval. That's what sovereignty means. He is sovereign. And there's a beautiful promise kind of implied in these verses that someday peace will come. And, and there's a couple of different senses to that. Someday peace will come. To, to you who are waging warring against God, peace will come. It may not be on your terms. You may be broken. You may be the one who's sitting there wondering where your chariots and where your bow went. It may not be on your terms. Your weapons of war against the Lord may be broken. And your reason, your experience, all those things that you say, used to say that God it can't be real because of X, Y, or Z, because of my reason, because of my experience. God cannot be real because X, Y, or Z. All of those things that you wage war against God with, those are going to be shattered. And I would also say that to those of you who are lonely, who are brokenhearted, who are oppressed, the same promise peace will come. It may not be this side of heaven, but I can say that if you trust, if you put your trust in Christ, if you trust him as your peace, then I will say that your peace is, is as sure as the resurrection. To you who find struggle in everything, that life is just simply difficult all around because of money or because of sin or because of poor health or difficult relationships or any of the million things that plague us this side of eternity, if you struggle in everything, if life is just hard, peace will come. It may look different than you think it should. It may, be, it may take a different form or different timeline than you think it should. But rest assured that your peace will come. And the God who brings peace is not stupid, unconcerned, or angry with you. And he's not slow. He is eternal. He is good toward his people. And he is perfect in all of his ways. So, what does God say? He brings peace, crushes turmoil. Therefore, what does he say to us? What does he command us to do? He gives us three imperatives. In verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. <clears throat> so, that's, that's interesting. Therefore... I'm going to give you this verse to put on your coffee cups. I'm going to give you this verse to, you know, make your life, you're going to give you something that you can frame on your wall in 3,000 years. In light of all these things that I'm sovereign over, in light of all the, the first nine verses of this psalm, I'm going to give you something that you can put into a painting and make it trite. That's not the sense of this idea of be still and no, that's not what's going on here. In context, that idea that I'm going to give you something that you can post on Facebook or Instagram and remind your friends of to have their quiet time, and this, this cute verse of be still and know that I'm God, I was just going to be still, brew my coffee, and know. That's not the sense that's going on here. What's going on here? This, this, is, <laughs> this is one of the most taken out of context verses in the entire Bible. It's not a Rest in the Lord and know him deeply and be satisfied and just know that he's the sovereign creator of the universe. That's okay. You can do that. You can, you can do that. But it, this, this verse doesn't come with flowers and a journal. This verse is, <laughs> to hear me, 
I don't mean to mock that too much. I don't mean to mock it too hard. Those are all biblical things to do. Certainly journal. Certainly read your Bible. Certainly pray. Certainly be secure in who God has made you. But in, in this in context, this verse, in the context of a military conflict and warring nations, it carries a lot more force to it. It carries a lot more weight and authority to it. It says, basically, and there's a lot more severity with it, too. God is commanding everybody to stop. You have these nations warring like two little toddlers messing with each other, stealing each other's toys, and God says, stop, because they are not sovereign. They are not an authority. He is. So he breaks up the fight. So stop warring against the Lord and his glory. Stop raging in your sin nature. Stop sinning against him. Know that he is God and not you. Know that he will be exalted in the nations, and know that he will be exalted in the earth, not you. You are not sovereign. You are not the creator. You are not God. So be still. Stop. And know that he is the one who is God. The second half of that verse talks about him being exalted in the nations and in the earth. Friends, God will have his glory. He is worthy and he will have it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's Romans 14 and Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It may be that you have to bend your knee and stoop your back out of, and, and, and relinquish your pride to do that. It may be that you have to have those words forced out of your mouth, but the creator of your mouth and your vocal cords and your tongue will have his glory from you, whether you want it or not. He will win. I mentioned a few minutes ago Ecclesiastes 12.7, which says that God will require back from you the breath of life that he gave you. So my question to you right now is, what will you do with your last breath? What will you do with that? Will, will your last breath be a confession of God's greatness and glory and beauty in all the earth? Or will it be a curse and final last gasp of a rebellion against the God that you have hated all your life? What will you do with that last breath? My encouragement from these verses is to put down your rebellion. Stop waging war. Stop sinning against God. Stop trying to win your own glory. Be still and know that God is God. And also, I would say this. This is painting a fiery picture of rebellion, of war and turmoil and things like that. Not all rebellions are fiery and violent. Not all wars involve missiles and tanks. Some rebellions are quiet and in your heart. Some wars rage beneath the surface of a poker face. So put away your rebellion wherever it is, whether it's open or whether it's quiet. Know the Lord and follow him faithfully. So be still and also know him. What he, not just to be still, but to also know who he is, know what he loves, know what he hates, know and study what he has revealed, the Bible. Speak with him in prayer. Be in community with his people, the church. Be in community here at the way. Become a member here. Or there's other churches in town too. This isn't the only one. There's some good churches around. I mean, Redeemer's up on the north side. Fantastic. You want to come up to the ghetto? We'll have you. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. That's a shameless plug. Be plugged in. 
at the way. Become a member here. You're obviously here. May as well stay. This is a good church, good leadership, godly people. They preach the word of God here, and that is a beautiful thing and increasingly rare, as I've found. So be still and to know him and rest in the promise restated in verse 11 that the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's look at that and kind of look back over our time here. Friends, the the only way to live securely, to be able to stand when the world crumbles and when the nations rage, the only security in difficult times such as those are one, to know the God who is sovereign over creation, verses 1 through 3, that he is a refuge for us so we shouldn't fear. And then also the second part is to know the God who is sovereign over the nations in verses 4 through 7, that he is a source of gladness and security for us so we shouldn't be moved. We shouldn't fear, verses 1 through 3, we shouldn't be moved in verses 4 through 7. And then finally, to worship God, we see in verse 8. So my question, my last round of questions... I've been bludgeoning you a lot. My last round of questions for you. Do you know Jesus? Do you know this God? Do you know the God of the Bible? Do you know the word of God made flesh, Jesus of Nazareth? You see, he he lived the perfect life that we could not. And he died the death, the horrific death that was meant for us. And God put our sins, our rebellion on him on the cross. And he was, not only did he die and was put into a tomb, okay, that's fine, but he was also resurrected and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father in the throne room of heaven. So now we Christians follow him, we follow him imperfectly, but we Christians, if we claim the name of Christ, we follow him faithfully. We're faithful in that, we're obedient in that. And we will live with him in glory for eternity. So we don't fear death, we don't fear trials and struggles, We don't fear any of those things because we know the God who created us. We don't fear death because for us it's going to be a welcome home at long last. Welcome to your refuge. And maybe we paint it this way. If you're you're a Christian, if you know Christ, this earth, these struggles, these trials that you're enduring, the beautiful promise is that this is as close to hell as you will ever get. This is as bad as it's ever going to be. I'm not trying to be like down on you. I'm just saying that there's a great hope ahead. This is as close to hell as we Christians will ever be. That should give us great hope, great courage, and great thankfulness. But hear me on this. If you do not know Jesus, if you're not following him faithfully, and if you're living your life for yourself, hear me. You may see some success in this life. You may make some money. You may have a lot of friends, and you may have a lot of influence, and that's, that's all fine and dandy. But this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. This is as good as it's going to ever get for you. There's no hope. There's nothing beyond this existence. There's nothing beyond this time here on this planet if you don't know Christ, if you don't know him and follow him faithfully, if you don't know the God of the Bible who is sovereign over creation, over nations. This is as close as you will ever get, and your money and your fame and your joy will not last because they are not eternal. God has not ordained that they be. God is not a secure fortress for you. He is actually at war with you, and he will have his glory in your life one way or the other. So my plea with you this morning 
if you do not know Jesus, is to lay down your rebellion, to see that God is abounding in love, that he is faithful, that he is a wonderful father who lavishes grace on us. And my plea to you is to come to Jesus, call on him in faith, and follow him faithfully the rest of your life. You will see that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You will see that the joys of following him far outweigh and outlast anything that this earth can give you. So if you'd like to pray and talk through these things, I'll be at the back with my family. You can also come speak with Pastor Seth, Matt, any of these guys. We'd love to talk with you. If you want to pray through that, ask some questions and talk through what that looks like. Any of the pastors here would love to pray with you and care for you in that way. So I hope that if you don't know Jesus, I hope I've given you a lot to think through this morning. The God of creation, the God who's sovereign. If you do know Jesus... I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're unmoved. And I hope you're strengthened in God, your refuge. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. These beautiful promises from 3,000 years ago. We praise you that you ordain your creation, that you ordain all of this life, all of eternity for your glory. And we pray that we are part of that. Pray that we can follow you faithfully. Pray that we would be obedient and make much of you with our lives until you call us home. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.